Well, you you see, Gwendolyn, you're gonna have to reel me in because uh, <laughs> I have all the words and <laughs> lots of thoughts and opinions. So you got to, you got to, you gonna have to reel me in. <laughs> Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Hey, everyone. We're back with Jamie Law for part two of the conversation we had back at the end of December 2021. In this part, we go deeper into her journey as an entrepreneur and musician, as well as the intricacies of the work the Black Opera Alliance is doing to lead opera forward. A reminder at the top that if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you want to support the important work of the Black Opera Alliance, the link to donate is in the show notes. All right, on with the show. Well, I was thinking about our discussion and kind of where we left it and thinking, actually, I do want to go back a little bit because you said something offhand that I wanted to go into more that I think is so important for our audience. And that is that you built your career as an entrepreneur, as mm-hmm. a musician entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I think with this, with this way that careers are kind of explained to us and what's possible, we don't see the like endless possibilities of making your own path. And so I want to hear you got out of grad school and you started doing your own thing. So I know you, um, I know you were a young artist with Atlanta Opera, and that's what brought you here to Atlanta. Yes? Uh, well, not quite in that order. Okay, um, let's hear it. You know, <laughs> Black people brought me to Atlanta. <laughs> All so, right. <laughs> so basically what it was, was I, um, you know, middle school, high school, I went to school in predominantly white areas. And then college, I had more diverse opportunities. And I came to Atlanta for an academic conference at the start of grad school and fell in love with Atlanta again. And it just felt, it felt so good to, you know, not be looked at as you're like, oh, wow, look, somebody new, somebody different to be normal in my space. It felt, it felt good. First time I came to Atlanta, I was 15. The second time I came back, I had my five-year-old daughter with me. And so it had even more of an impact because I I really wanted that for her. I wanted her to be able to see herself as normal and to be able to see so many different expressions of herself. So when I finished grad school, we moved to Atlanta. We found an excuse, which was um, my mom. We're like, hey, ma, don't you want to go and pursue your uh, grad degree at Georgia State? (laughs) All right. So we got her in and, 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 and tagged along. So I came and I did, I, um, I got in with the chorus at Atlanta Opera and was then able to do you know, different outreach opportunities and doing a bit of touring. And this is before they had any established studio artist program. It was just kind of the local artists pretty much, you know, do patron events and community collaborative events. And so that was pretty much the most I was able to do. So it was pretty much gigging with the Atlanta Opera and church jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) You figured that out pretty quick. Yeah, it wasn't sufficient. So, you know, I and I I was like, listen, I went to school and got all of these degrees in music. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do something with it. So I started, I started teaching and that was supplementing income, but still just in terms of needing to perform, I was, you know, I did the back and forth to New York audition season, my first year here, which my sister was right off of 143rd and Broadway on the one. So I just had a key to her place. So that was nice. But, you know, my daughter who was seven, I'm like, "Uh, I can't, I can't do this you know, back and forth because, you know, I I was doing pretty well and doing pretty well in some competitions and stuff, but the payoff wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't balanced. And I was just like, even when I do book these things, I can't justify the expense and the time away from my daughter um, Mm -hmm. at this level. So I was like, okay, we got to keep it in Atlanta, keep it in Georgia, keep it regional. All right, cool. Atlanta opera stuff is cool. There's another, um, local company here, Capital City Opera, got Mm -hmm. in with them. It's like, okay, cool. So I'm backing gigs and started teaching privately. And it was just a lot of piecemealing. Mm -hmm. I had a mom at my daughter's school say, hey, we want to bring our daughter to take lessons with you, piano lessons. But by the time we pick her up from after school, she's got to get her homework finished and then we got to get her fed and get, you know, get some sleep and there's just not any time. And then our weekends are packed. And I was like, yeah, I get it. And she's like, you should just bring lessons here. And I was Mm. like, oh, I should. And so I started teaching lessons at my daughter's school, which grew into a business music after school that I had for seven, eight years. Awesome. And is it like group sort of lessons? I would do group lessons. I would do individual lessons. And it grew to the point to where I had up to four teachers contracted with me. We were at four different schools and it was, it's pretty cool. But again, it was great for the time. And also it was not the thing. Mm-hmm. So I ultimately did relinquish that, but the entrepreneurship was born out of necessity because it was like, mm-hmm. I got to eat and, <laughs> and I have to sing, right. I have to make mm-hmm. music. So it just, it seemed, it seemed like I didn't have another choice, which of course, you know, I did, I could have, I could have gotten a day job and in many ways it would have been easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the wherewithal to put it together. And mm-hmm. so I did. And it was really helpful in developing me as an artist because I got to see how things worked from different angles. Mm -hmm. And many of the things that I just kind of took as fact in school, Mm -hmm. um, I found on this side of things to be a lot more subjective and flexible, Mm -hmm. which then had me questioning some things and had me leaning into my own creativity more. Absolutely. I think that whole that whole process of becoming, I mean, I hate to say the cliche, but becoming your own boss, it's not really like your own boss, all your clients are your bosses in a way, but you're able as an entrepreneur to create the entire world that you want to work in and what boundaries and parameters you want to move in. And that's a, I think as an artist is an especially, especially a classical artist in the way we're kind of raised, if you will. Mm-hmm. is such an empowering experience. Oh yeah, because you, one, you get to see that there is more, right? Um, mm-hmm. Outside of the very dogmatic structure that is classical and opera music or has mm-hmm. been, I'll say, because it's 
you know, we're, we're chipping away at it. But even as a, I was, a, you know, non-traditional student because of my path and journey, I was older than the other students, but I still was very much raised in my training to be like, this is the way. And because I did not have a background, I felt like an outsider coming in. So I have to follow the rules very strictly mm-hmm. or else I'm not mm-hmm. doing the thing. And mm-hmm. so this experience that I had as an entrepreneur, have as an entrepreneur, I get to see just how, what goes into it, right? You mentioned getting to craft your world the way you want to. And you also mentioned, you know, your clients being your boss. I mean, that was something that I learned because at first it was like, okay, I need all the dollars. (laughs) And I was, (laughs) and so I was getting all the dollars, but then I was like, why am I so drained? I mean, aside Mm. from, you know, driving around the city doing in-home lessons and like, but Mm. Like half of my students were there because, you know, their parents had a piano in the house and somebody's got to play it (laughs) or, (laughs) you know, or they saw somebody playing that one time. And so they tried it and they're like, "Mm, nope, I don't want to do this. Or, you know, for the prestige of having your kid taking, you know, just like all of these reasons that are not the child's. Mm. And so I'm in the lesson with the child every week. (laughs) (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. what I'm having to deal with. And at first it was, oh, you know, I'll, you know, if you want to pay me out, I'll, I'll take your money. Um, mm. But then it was just like soul draining. I was like, I don't want to be in this energy with this person who doesn't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And so even with that, right, informing every realm of life, but even in the um, projects that I then take on musically. Again, I don't want to be in a space with people who don't want me here or Mm -hmm. who don't want to be here or who, you know what I mean? Like I get to have a say in the vibe that I participate in. And again, the way we were raised, it was like, you got to take everything that comes because it's hustle, hustle, or you're trying to get these people to see you or hear you. You're trying to get this affirmation. You're trying to get this, you know, connection. So my background in building on this side, empowering is the best word that I could find for that. Mm -hmm. I can so relate to what you're saying there because I am actually just kind of coming out of my little cocoon um, since, since really deciding, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do of this. And it's not going to be, I'm not going to depend on it in any way. It's going to be my art and it's going to be my expression. And I am actually currently facing down this, this opportunity. I have this offer I have to work. And I went there once and was kind of like, Ooh, the vibe's really off, but, and it's like weighing all of these things. Like would I actually say no to an op? Am I going to say no to this? I've never done that before. <laughs> it's really wild. It is bananas. And then when you get on the other side of having said no, you look and it's like, I can't believe all of the crap I subjected myself. Because it's like, we'll say things to people who are not in the industry about, you know, things that are just every day for us and people will look at us like oh poor you know blink twice if you need me to come and get you out (laughs) (laughs) like girl you you know we're free you can choose like Mm -hmm. I, I need you to not I mean you know my siblings my older sister I'm looking at her picture right now of my older sister was like girl 
because it's so funny again when you come out from the haze and you look and you realize we put up with things in this industry that we would not dare put up with in relationships with people Mm -hmm. right or in other jobs right and so um it's so wild isn't it that like what we're here to do it like if we actually root in what we're here to do in this industry and the potential of opera to be this this art that encompasses all art and all expression and we're not treating each other like we're humans we can't even treat each other like we're like we're actual people wow because in essence the essence of art is the essence of humanity right Mm -hmm. and so when we deny the humanity of others and by extension ourselves then we're already cutting off our ability to make quality impactful art so I was commissioned along with a a collaborative artist an artist that I, I frequently collaborate with Dr. Brittany Boykin we were commissioned to create a workshop with the Atlanta Opera called Tapestry. Mm. And it was born of my absolute love of spirituals. And I love spirituals because of the depths of humanity that imbues them. Mm -hmm. And to see how this music that was born of a very specific experience, time, place, people, right? Languages and how they were formed to see that and to see the transcendent impact that those songs have had globally, Mm. right? To see that this music that was born from people who had been taken from their homes violently, who have been taken from their people, right? And kind of placed in this melting pot, right? A true melting pot, because like y'all are all brown and all different. So different Mm -hmm. languages and brought together no common language, stripped of culture, right? The music, forms of making music and created something brand new, right? Dvorak said that the only true American music was the music of the people who was already here and the enslaved, Mm -hmm. right? Because they literally crafted it here. And to see this music then taken overseas And to see how, you know, Paul Robeson took it to the Russian and their labor music and just people who couldn't even understand the words, right? It's that human. Mm -hmm. It is that human. And it was not based on years of extensive and exclusive and exclusionary training, right? Mm -hmm. It was born of their experience and the tools they had access to. And so when we deny all of this (laughs) that Mm -hmm. we come with, that's the core of what we're doing. And when we make everything else more important than that, it's no wonder (laughs) that our music cannot, not just that it does not, it cannot reach through to the humanity of those who are outside of its pedigree. Mm-hmm. Because it's been ten- intentionally set up that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, th- there are so many inhumane structures within art in general that it really is a shame for those who are within it and those who are without it. Because I do believe that there's so much that we have to say and that we have 
you know, the tools, right? You know, as singers, we have these overly developed voices, right? Just Mm -hmm. like that are ideal for expressing heightened emotion, right? I mean, how much shit can you talk about (laughs) with opera (laughs) and heightened emotion? Let me count the ways, right? But yet and still, we're still talking about the same things that Mm -hmm. many people do not resonate with or connect to. And people like me, who, again, were were outside of the culture, but have this voice, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's the thing. We, We have this elitism and opera that has very prescribed notions for what is opera. Um, yes. And what oh. is credible and valuable and all of these different things. And I went through the training. Right. And now, though, I'm at the point to where I'm like, I know this is what this says, but this is my voice. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't I didn't want this voice. I wanted to be Anita Baker. I wanted to be <laughs> a sultry alto. OK. So if I got to go down the line and pick, that's what I would have chose. That's what I would have picked. Mm-hmm. But this is the voice that I have. And it was bestowed upon me, even in the midst of my ignorance, right? I was ignorant of these art forms, mm-hmm. but I had this voice and it's mine. I get to say what I do with this voice. Mm-hmm. All of us who have our training all of us who have our perspectives, like I am opera, Mm. you know, like I'm an opera singer, whether I'm on your stage or not, like I trained and developed this instrument, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm able to produce the sound. I am able to pair it with storytelling and it speaks to those who listen, whether it is on an operatic stage or last weekend, I did a comedy show, right? I like, saw on your stories. I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. And guess what? That's opera too. Mm-hmm. I love that you're talking about this because I think there's such a, it's something I really started thinking about moving here because there's a real difference of experiencing an art form and opera has a lot to do in Germany as well, but there is more of a, of a cultural anchoring. Like it did more start out as a music of the people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and america kind of took it and was like oh well this is european and so it must be wonderful and we're going to put it up on this pedestal and tell everybody that this is something for the rich people that you should aspire to and when they was throwing you know they was throwing flowers and panties and you know getting yeah. crunk and and, and yeah. growling yeah like they was turned up in them operas I digress yeah but kind of looking at that and seeing that in the with these eyes um like kind of seeing it with new eyes in a way I was really thinking a lot about you know we have these categories of high art and low art and why do we call it that and yes it takes a ton of training to be an opera singer it also takes a ton of training to you know be a modern dancer or be the kind of dancer who backs somebody like Beyonce up. I'm just going to go and throw that out there because I think about Beyonce because I remember sitting and watching Lemonade and thinking, this is opera. 
why are we not calling it opera? We're not calling it opera because Beyonce is speaking to such a wide audience. Like while you were talking the whole time, I was like, okay, I'm going to sound so fucking basic, but I'm just going to say it. I'm going to talk about lemonade. I'm going to be that white lady that talks about lemonade. But like, (laughs) it kind of blows me away that we're not discussing her. I love how on uh, the Triloquy podcast, Mm -hmm. um, Garrett McQueen, if I'm saying his name. Oh yeah. 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 He talks about her as a composer. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why have I not heard that more? Why have I not heard that more? And it's it's kind of this it's this combination of yes, racism, but also just a general exclusion of everything that's really relevant and really telling a story about what's happening in the world can't be opera because it's not exclusionary enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How sad. <laughs> and I call myself an opera artist. I'm including myself in that practice. Mm-hmm. That's disappointing. Yeah, I mean, we've all been washing in the sauce. It's like the myth of white supremacy. Everyone has to be in on it for it to work, right? So Mm -hmm. this myth of exclusionary elitism, we all have to be in on it, right? And we get something Mm -hmm. from it. I get something when I tell people I'm an opera singer, right? Mm -hmm. It's usually followed by, oh, right okay like that's that's an old white lady that's a that's a 25 year old black man it's like oh (laughs) you know people now I'm a recovering opera singer (laughs) (laughs) hi my name is Gwendolyn (laughs) but you know I I've I've been playing with it because it also communicates something right Mm -hmm. beyond this elitism it also communicates the quality of my voice right Because for me, in my packaging, in my phenotype, if I say I'm a singer, what comes to mind all Mm -hmm. automatically? And I don't have a problem being perceived as a singer, right? As (laughs) I say, but I'm like, but I just want to manage expectation. (laughs) Like I have great respect for Jasmine Sullivan. I wish right? In many ways. But if I say, if I, when I tell you I'm a singer, just don't like, don't expect me to do that, which mm-hmm. stereotyping will do that, which is a lot has, forms a lot of the response that I get. Cause it's like, Oh, Oh, like a processing on multiple levels. Like, Oh, yeah. you don't meet opera singers every day. Oh, you don't meet black opera singers every day. And so mm-hmm. There's, there is some activism in that, um, in challenging, you know? Yeah. Um, it was so interesting. I was thinking over our conversation um, that at this point was a week ago and thinking how interesting the different perspectives are depending on who you have come into contact with and like you being, you owning the fact that you are a black opera singer and allowing yourself to be seen that way is really changing expectations in a huge mm-hmm. way. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized how my teacher in undergrad had done that stealthily. Mm-hmm. His name was Earl Coleman. I love this man. And he uh, is a black baritone. And so we had listening assignments in our studio. Mm-hmm. And who am I listening to? 
Denise Graves, mm-hmm. Jesse Norman, Shirley Verrett, like the people you were listening, listing off. I was like, yeah, to me, like when I think of opera singer because of my early impressions, mm-hmm. those are the names I come up with. Grace Bumbry, like, and it is because I was in Columbus State. We had many singers of color because of where we were partly and because you know they were actively reaching out to um the jesse norman school in augusta mm-hmm. and like i just had such a different interpretation until i left until mm-hmm. i left georgia mm-hmm. so i think that is that's just like kind of an other side of the coin experience i wanted to share with you because i thought wow like she didn't think she was there was anyone reflective of her in the art form until somebody searched for it for her. Whereas I was in this undergrad program where it was just, it was so selbstverständlich. How do you, um, it was just, it was just part of the water. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. He helped to set your aesthetic, establish your aesthetic mm-hmm. and without ever commenting on it. <laughs> it was just uh, because, and because really, and isn't that the way, right? Yeah. Because it's just normal, right? Mm-hmm. When people, when people say things like, I don't see color, what they are hoping to get to <laughs> is that, right? It's not that I don't have to ignore or be blind to it. It just doesn't inform. We're in a class hearing opera singers and these are opera singers. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask me if they were black, I'd say, yeah, they were black because mm-hmm. I saw their color, but that's not what the focus was. That's not what the spotlight was. Right. This, in a nutshell, is the not just the importance, but the essentialness of diversity mm. and inclusion and incorporation, right? Empowering the voices of other people so that their normals become a part of the conversation, mm. right? Because if not, then it becomes. It, it requires an extra layer layer of effort, which is fine, especially at this point, right? But that also influences how things are conveyed, right? It's different mm-hmm. if you have a white teacher who says, okay, now we're going to have some Black opera singers. I'm going mm-hmm. to expo- expose my students to Black opera singers. It still makes it this special event. Mm, right makes us this gated off little category yeah which is which is how it has been done if it has been done that's how it has been done in my experience and the experience of many that I know to date is that it's typically okay now we're gonna get out of our comfort zone guys (laughs) you know (laughs) and and here's the thing and this and this goes with any um any diversity Chances are it is the adults or the teacher or the professor, whatever, who is dealing with the discomfort because the students, the kids don't know no different. They don't know no quote unquote better. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you are, for example, teaching a lesson on uh, emotional intelligence or or affection or love, and you're showing five-year-olds flashcards with two men hugging Mm -hmm. right or two women giving a kiss right and you just leave it the kids will process it 
But what mm-hmm. tends to happen is it's the, the adults own discomfort. Well, how do we talk about, it's like, well, how do you talk about anything? Mm-hmm. You know? So, so anyway, that's what, you know, one of my other tangents, yeah. again, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's essential. And these are the people whose voices have to lead the way. And I think this conversation actually leads us so well into something I'm hoping you're comfortable talking about, which was this conversation with Jane Elliott during mm-hmm. uh, Shade, a conversation mm-hmm. about race, cultural culture, and identity in opera hosted by the Black Opera Alliance. You were not mm-hmm. in that conversation, but you came yeah. back and you contextualized it so beautifully. And like the whole time I'm, I'm sitting there and I all kind of say what I was seeing. I was seeing Mm -hmm. a white woman who has done some really incredible work to help teach other white people how to how to contextualize people who aren't like them as humans, Mm -hmm. which is freaking great and needs to be done. And I saw her coming into a conversation that is being led by black people and talking over them talking about a particular word in a context that I think serves people in her generation, but Mm -hmm. not in ours. Mm -hmm. And so um, that word was black about whether or not to use the word black Mm -hmm. and, or to use any sort of contextualization of like, this person is a different color. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there listening to it thinking, well, you know, I didn't grow up in the, in segregation. My dad did. I didn't grow up in in these contexts to where you literally had to tell somebody these people who have been kept separate from you are actually also people. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that context. The context I have is we then switched and said, okay, we don't see color. And if you see color, you're racist. And like, now we have to be this way. And like what the last two years has really been bringing up in front of our face is no, we have to see each other. We have to see our experiences. And the color is part of the experience. And you came, so I'm like squirming. <laughs> and I'm like, is somebody going to say something? <laughs> and you came back on and you said, and I'm just going to let you take over. <laughs> that was so, so that conversation, um, I, you sum, you summarized it so so well um, because I'll just before I come in with what I said I'll just I'll rewind it a little bit because some of the questions or feedback that I've gotten is like well what was what was the purpose you know with her mm. in the space mm. and and I'll just I'll, you know I'll be real blunt on how it was set up because the conversation was born out of some discomforts that opera companies have had with our requiring that they report on the race of the people that they've hired. Right. Um, Because as you said, in this, you know, the great awakening, you know, everybody's (laughs) woke now, you know, people are like, oh, no, 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 no. We want to let people self-identify. Like, it's not right for me to project on you and it's like yes and Mm. for the purposes of this and for tracking behaviors as it pertains to race right we're tracking the system's participation or the system's structural behaviors around race it 
depends upon your perspectives. Mm. And so we were like, you know what? There's so much nuance in this conversation that white people have never, ever had to engage with. So are literally ignorant of. Mm -hmm. So we are going to have a webinar that informs white people, like gives some context for Mm -hmm. nuance and also allows Black people to feel seen and heard and Mm -hmm. for us to speak to the deeper relationships with nuance, right? Since we're already, we're already like advanced, you know, post-grad level. (laughs) I don't know if I, I don't know if I said this before, but I think I did in our, in the beginning of our conversation last week, but like how much I'm realizing like black artists are so much more advanced in this conversation. It's literal survival, right? That requires black people to be able to discern and perceive how we are perceived, Mm. right? And Mm. it used to be, well, I was going to, I was going to say it used to be a matter of physical survival, but not, it still is, right? You know, and that's where that notion of respectability politics comes from, you know, like pull your pants up, be polite, don't look them in the eye, step off the curb, you know, say yes. Like it go. that's where it's born of. In order to keep you alive, you must learn how to interpret these things. It has evolved into in order to get a job or keep my job right in order to get hired back. Right. Mm -hmm. In order to not be perceived as difficult. Mm. right? You must do this. You must not do that. You must be able to sense and to tap into what everyone else is feeling in the space around you and cater to that, Mm. right? So post-grad here, other side of the spectrum, whiteness, everything is crafted to cater to whiteness. So white gets to be oblivious, right? Mm. And I say gets to be, but As we are seeing it, you know, we talk about this language of privilege as we are seeing it is not good for the ways in which white people have been stunted in (laughs) human relationship is not healthy or good for white people. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're like, we're going to do this first segment where Jane Elliott talks to white people about race. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have Sandra Seton, an amazing playwright librettist, talk about what it looks like to have conversations around race, you know, in her work. And then have this, you know, roundtable conversation with artists and, you know, folk in the industry about where, what it looks like now, where we go to next. Mm -hmm. So in the conversation um, with Jane Elliott, before we shared um, an, a testimonial from Arissa Burrs, which was so generous mm-hmm. and was so was the crux of yeah. the need for the conversation because she is a demonstration and was a was a um, current, present, relevant example as to why we have to track organizational behavior because she was able to speak to the fact that while her identity is black, she is not racialized as black because people don't see black when they look at her. Mm -hmm. And so Jane Elliott heard some language 
in the video that I think distracted, <laughs> distracted, and it took it, it took it um, a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, what you said tracks with what much of the feedback we got was, and that is the conversation around the use of Black as an identifier as negative. Um, mm-hmm. It is dependent upon a dated concept and that and and so when I came back in and because we were getting ready to go into this round table where the centering <laughs> of the conversation was being black in this yeah. industry right <laughs> so so I'm like I feel like we gotta just kind of come back to contextualize what the whole thing is because the nuance that we were getting to is that race culture and identity are all different Mm. And that oftentimes, while often they do all overlap, they oftentimes do not. And so we heard from Marissa who told us how the way she is racialized, which is how people perceive you, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's the whole faulty construct Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is based off of nothing real or true. She demonstrated how she is racialized one way but that her culture and her identity are indeed another. And that even as she expresses this identity of being Black, she is very much aware that when people see her, they do not see that. I'm listening to Mariah Carey's autobiography. Mm. I already, I love me Mariah. I, I feel like she is the best songwriter, period. But she's talking about how so many times it wasn't until people saw her father that they realized she was black. And once mm-hmm. they saw him, she paid the price. Oh, she wow. had to be punished in essence for tricking, <laughs> you know, people. She's a kid in school, right? Mm-hmm. She's a kid or even not a kid. She's just in life living, mm-hmm. but people who have who do not present as society thinks they should are expected to what like wear a sign or something like you got to let us know what we're looking at they're expected to explain themselves in a way exactly which we heard from Tuli Inirio who is Afro-Dominican right right she is racialized as black and her culture is Latinx right Mm -hmm. and her identity is Afro-Latina, right? She is Black. She is Latina. She is Mm -hmm. all of it. And she spoke to how, again, because how people racialize her and ignorance, right? Because Mm -hmm. ignorance does not realize that the majority of Black folks on this side of the world exist (laughs) in Latin America, right? Like Mm -hmm. they don't realize the majority are Spanish speaking. She had such a beautiful point. I think she said something about, well, like white supremacy, part of what, part of what this does is try to push aside or minimize or erase other parts of the culture. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know, if you're a white person or if you're just anyone, especially in North America, and you don't know that there's a lot of black people in South America and Central America, well, that would be why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's by design. And so 
that was the purpose of that space is to bring these things, to bring these, these contexts, to bring these voices to the forefront mm-hmm. and to distinguish, right? To introduce for many this nuance that race, culture, and identity are different and that Black is a race, Black mm-hmm. is a culture, Black is an identity, right? Mm-hmm. And as a race, it's not just as simple to say, don't call yourself that, or don't let people call you that, or I don't see race, or it's not that simple when it is entrenched in the fabric of the entire society for hundreds of years, right? We can't just like go and take an eraser and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. As far as culture, and that's the distinction I wanted to make, much like with the spirituals, when everything is taken away, we mm-hmm. take what we had and we added the sauce mm-hmm. and made it something new. That's Black. That's Black culture. And then identity. That's who I say I am. Mm-hmm. I say I am Black. Mm-hmm. Arissa Burr says she is a mixed woman with a black father and a white mother. Mm -hmm. So that's the part where I self-identify is my identity. But in race, in this existing construct, that's what you say I am. Mm -hmm. You look at me and I, and and again, because I'm post-grad level (laughs) in this, in the game, Mm. I know what you see when you look at me, Mm. right? And even, even when we, even when people try to play coy, right. I know what you see that's race. Mm -hmm. And, and it's that culture space where the environment and those attributes that we bring together mix and meld and create a shared identity, right? There's a whole lot of us who say we're black. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the expansion of black as race as culture and as identity right because it was here first right and and america really exported mm-hmm. <laughs> exported its goods right we we know how the the um the nazis and yeah, we know the, how to uh, spread an idea oh oh do we right mm. and and how the how the nazis and the um the uh, apartheid government in south africa studied american racism Right. Mm -hmm. So, but when you've got a continent full of this hue, right? They're like, I'm not black, I'm Igbo. Yeah. I'm Yoruba. I'm, you know, but it's when, like you said, you spread that, or when people come out and then the only context other people have, ignorance, right? Is, oh, you're black. Mm hmm. Now, again, with the spreading of ideas, because Black culture is everywhere, right? Like rap, hello, Mm -hmm. dance, music, Mm -hmm. you know, fashion, like everything, including spread back to the continent of Africa. So now, you know, there is more of that Pan-African melding. And I am experiencing more more people from the continent and and just Pan-African diaspora identifying as Black. Mm. Oh, that's right. so interesting. It's that was something very that interesting. that was something that was um, 
that I kind of realized coming back from Germany, like for one, <laughs> for one thing, I remember the first time I ever came back and I got out at Hartsfield and I was just like, oh, I'm in Atlanta. It's like, you just realize how pale everything is over there, which is, you know, fine. But also when you, when you meet black people in Berlin, which is where I was, and I went to the English, an English speaking church. So there were a lot of people from Africa and seeing the different ways that people identify and the different ways that people kind of put themselves out there in society and that it's not it was a very different way than I grew up with of Mm -hmm. thinking of what it meant to be black and now coming back and having it be this very very simple thing Mm -hmm. um, in the wider culture you know like you're you're either black or you're not and um, (laughs) just how how interesting it is like I don't know if I should if it's for me to put any sort of value on it. Mm-hmm. I know in Oakland, I was um, I was an admin at a church that had a huge Tanzanian membership and they were very frustrated by the idea of being called black mm-hmm. because it just lumped them in with this very general idea. And it washes away their culture. And right? it does that too. It does that to white people too, right? Like, well, I have, listen, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, if, <laughs> I mean, go off on another tangent. I was like, no, see, we see this is a different. This is a different one, because, mm. and this is and this oh, is yeah. what I'm saying in terms of the construct of race has been destructive for us all, mm-hmm. and so it is a matter of our proximity to our culture that um, de- de- determines our um, awareness of that destruction, right? And so, what I hear you right. saying is. Again, when we break down race, culture, identity, Mm -hmm. right? Because oftentimes, simple, right? White, that's my race, that's my culture, that's my identity, right? And really there's no no separating, right? Because white is everything, right? White is just American. My mom was referencing a study, you know, it's like a poll and it was like they they, they, they polled Americans and this is what they said. And we know code, right? It's like, what Americans, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But just because all of those line up simply for Black people who had everything else stripped away, you've got Tanzanians who have a very specific culture, right? Very specific language, practices, beliefs, Mm -hmm. history, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the same. And you the proverbial you do not get to erase that. Mm -hmm. And that's that identity that I speak Mm -hmm. to. So, and that was very interesting coming back to the conversation about, um, about quantifying the race within an organization Mm -hmm. um, that we, the church I was working for at the time, um, was asked to do that quantifying and when when you bring it to the congregation and say okay we need to do this or they're asking us to do this they're like you're not putting down our race it was they were very resentful they were not going Mm -hmm. to be so um i'm interested because that then came to be a major discussion within the atlanta opera right here we're both in atlanta listeners if, if that hasn't come across um that there 
they came really close to being red card. The system is you refuse to sign the pledge, your red card, it doesn't mean the doesn't mean the conversation stops. It just means people need to know that you have not agreed. And then yellow card, they're thinking about it, working on it, green card they've signed. And Atlanta came really close to being red, partly because of this language, if I'm correct. Yeah. So there's so the that's the short of it. The nuance okay. is that so with Black Opera Alliance with this with the systems and the categories, we recognize that opera companies can have very unique ways of operating needs, resources, lack thereof. Mm-hmm. And so with the eight points that we list in the pledge, we also extend, you know, the opportunity for companies to adjust the pledges to align with their organization's needs, resources, abilities, while maintaining the spirit of the pledge. And the spirit of the pledge is this, we are the Black Opera Alliance. The Black is intentional because historically, whenever there have been measures at equity or um well, never reparations, uh, but but some kind of restorative measures mm-hmm. and the language is vague, right? Mm. The intention, right? The, the, the laborers, the ones who, who sparked and fought for the, um, the measures, Black people, the language is made general, right? People of color, even BIPOC, right? Or minority, that when you then look at the receipts, right? You look at the numbers of who have been served by these initiatives and black people are always found to be at the bottom. So these initiatives that they fought for, they, we end up not being served by. Mm -hmm. And so we were very intentional about black opera Alliance, not to be exclusionary, much like black lives matter. Um, Mm. but to be very specific in where our advocacy lies. And here's the thing, because of the hierarchical structure of the race myth, Black was constructed to be at the bottom. So if you serve Black people, everyone, by extension, benefits. We know this to be true. We're not being coy about it anymore just because hearing Black makes some people nervous. Mm. And so that is the core of our activism, Black, and accountability, because we know, again, receipts will show that when we have a flashbang moment and everybody wakes up, we get initiatives, and then folks start getting drowsy again. Mm. And once they go back to sleep, then the system, which has never been changed, only had a costume change, Mm. (laughs) gets to go back and put on the same robe it had before, which looks like the reversal of women's reproductive rights mm-hmm. and the loss, the continual fight for voter rights, mm-hmm. you know, like the defunding of affordable housing. So many things when we're actually talking about getting opportunities and getting wealth and getting basic living standards to all of our population. And it does always disproportionately affect Black people. And it's, It does. And it reverts back, Mm -hmm. right? When when the 
altruistic people are no longer in office or they're no longer feeling altruistic, Mm -hmm. right? The system never changed. So it goes back to its natural state of being, which the system was built to operate as it does. And so another major tenet in the pledge is accountability, meaning, you know, some people have made statements like, oh, we don't want to just, you know, be lip service or come across across as performative by just signing the pledge. And it's like, oh, no, you don't even have to worry about that. (laughs) You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, because this paper is merely the first step. This paper is your declaration. It is your declared statement that this is the direction that you are moving. And these are clear markers that anybody, if I fall asleep and wake back up and I look and I look at you, I can see where we are on our journey, Mm -hmm. right? Because we all know the destination. That's what this pledge is. So if we don't have the markers in place and the accountability in place, those on the outside won't know where we are in the journey mm-hmm. and what's left. We just have to trust you. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you just have to trust that y'all you're doing. Oh, you mean in this structure, in this system that was built to not do right by black people. Mm-hmm. And it was so, also built, really built to have amnesia. If you look all over the world, the way that opera houses, especially like a level B level houses, they're, they're built to completely change out leadership once every five to 10 years, somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so then you might've had the intendant, the game day, like those kind of people sign the pledge for their opera house. And then the next crew comes in and we don't know how they feel about it. And maybe the board wasn't really on board, but they just did it because they liked the game day. So yeah, this accountability piece is so key because it, it keeps, it kind of combats that organizational amnesia yeah and I mean and that's the and that's that's generous (laughs) (laughs) because black people Mm post-grad you know legacies right you know my grandpa went through the same system Mm -hmm. we recognize the hallmarks of appeasement right kicking the can down the road right the yellow category Mm -hmm. is kind of a catch-all because they've been in communication with us but haven't made the steps to be green, but they haven't said no. So they're not red. Mm -hmm. And so that can become a weaponized category, right? Mm. To just not do anything yet. Mm. Not yet, not, not yet. And yet keeps going down the road, right? So post-grad recognition accounts for those things. Mm -hmm. And so that's, those are the main things that we're looking for when companies bring back an adjusted version of the pledge and what we had received from the Atlanta opera was lacking those very essential hallmarks. Mm -hmm. And the reason it went to red was because we don't cut off the communication, Mm -hmm. but if a company, you know, declares that they're done, we let it be that. And so they sent a couple versions after, you know, our feedback and then there was just this kind of declaration. It's like, and here is our final draft. And it was like, oh, okay, well, we can't make this a green. And because you have finished the conversation, we have to grade the paper you turned in. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it was. And 
it was essential because when we're talking about the construct of race and the reason it was constructed and the ways in which it was applied, Georgia is one of the major seats of that oppression and injustice. And when we look at all, almost all of the arts organizations in Atlanta, none of them are anywhere near representing the population of the city, the black ass population of the city. Mm -hmm. When I say like 5% black administration, Mm -hmm. right? And that's another thing that we know that the systems, and I'll say this, the systems do, another way they do appeasement is visibility. So placing Black people, in our case, invisible roles, places, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, what's the most visible for opera? On the stage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you don't get any more visible than that, right? So seeing more Black people on the stage can feel like change. The difference is, is how much, I mean, and you and I know this, right? Like how much structural impact do the singers or the people on the stage have, Mm. right? So we have to look at all aspects when we're looking at those things like representation and it's like what your, your decision-making bodies, what do those look like? Mm -hmm. Because those are the people who have the power to change the structure. And as you spoke to your own educational process, people from diverse experiences bring their experiences, their knowledge, their lens to these conversations as we are looking to recreate structures, to recreate policies, to recreate systems, to things that look like they were created for all of us, Mm -hmm. not just having us try to conform as best we can to fit into the structures that really weren't even thinking about us. So that's the, that's the story um, with the Atlanta opera. We are, we're back in communication with them. They're going to be sending us another version. Um, We, we expressed to them, you know, Mm -hmm. what was required to, you know, to have it be accepted. And um, you know, that's what that is. Mm -hmm. I know that takes a lot of courage, especially for you because of the small, it's a small world down here. I mean, it's not, I, I, (laughs) I mentioned earlier, I was commissioned. I create programming. I've created programming for the Atlanta opera. I have Mm -hmm. been with the Atlanta opera for 11 years. So they know you. They know me. (laughs) They know me up in there. So when I'm in this meeting, I'm talking to people that I know Mm -hmm. and who know me. And so this is about so much more than me getting a better deal. Yeah. Right. It's, It's about so much more than creating drama and theatrics for social media. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It is about structural change as like basic requirements now. Mm hmm like period. And, and you say it's brave and I'm, and I'm not going to negate that. And I will say it's very unfair. It's very unfair work Mm. that my colleagues and I are being called to do because it requires so much time, Mm. so much energy, so much attention, so much emotional labor for volunteer Mm. and the work that we're doing 
benefits the entire, the entire industry. And we are doing this on top of whatever it is that we do. Like many of the people on the council are professors, you know, are active performers. You talked about Garrett McQueen, right? Mm -hmm. Triloquy. Yeah. You know, he, he out here doing his thing, like Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so we're doing this on top of what we are doing again, like I said, not to draw the cost drama, right? Cause I'm like, shit, I'd rather take my drama on the stage and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yes. But it is for transformation and, you know, I'm sitting here as we're ending out the year. I don't know when this is going to air. I was trying to make it, you know, not to date it too much, but, but, you know, I'm in this place where, and so many of us are burnt out, you know, and just evaluating where I've spent my energy and what I've gotten back for it. Mm. And this work is unfair and the thing that's probably most unfair is that it's common and expected that Black people would just labor mm. for free to fix the world. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that was the narrative around the elections, mm-hmm. right? I heard so many times Black women oh, will save us. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's the role that everyone is used to casting us in. And it's unfair because we must do it. Mm -hmm. I'll say this. It's because it must be done. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a beautiful place for us to end. Thank you so much for the now two and a half hours you have given us. Come on. Come on. Listeners, I've probably pared this down by the time you hear it, but um, thank you so much, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. And that, my friends, was Jamie Alleywall. You can find Jamie Alleywall on Twitter and Instagram at SangThisJamie. Website is jamie-alleywall.com. You can follow her coaching for individuals and organizations at From the Core Coaching on Instagram, and her website is fromthecorecoaching.com. Also, if you haven't yet or haven't in a while, go ahead and donate to the Black Opera Alliance to keep their work going. You can find the link to donate at theblackoperaalliance.org. Keep up with the pod on Instagram at Making It an Opera, and support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and pitch in some money by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.makingitinopera.com. Links, as always, for everything, are in the show notes of this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Jillian Page, actor, soprano, and creator of Meisner and Music. See you then. Making It an Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me, Gwendolyn Coleman.